Coffee in Space is a podcast by S. Daniel Smith that puts the best in established and up-and-coming science fiction and fantasy writers in front of you, their readers. Dan's goal is to help you learn more about who they are as people, how they write, and how they live. Whether you're listening to this podcast at home, or in your car, or somewhere in between, Dan hopes to transport you to the crew lounge on an intergalactic spaceship, where you can have a cup of your favourite coffee with science fiction and fantasy authors. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, Dan Smith back again. I've got a special treat for you today. 10 more minutes with Professor Charles Adler of St. Mary's College in Maryland. He's a physics uh, physicist and a physics professor there. Uh, he wrote a book about uh, science, fic- uh, science behind the science fiction, also fantasy, uh, the reality, I would say, uh, behind our fantasy. The, the book is called Wizards, Aliens, and Starships, Physics and Math in Fantasy and Science Fiction. And uh, we got to talking on the previous episode. If you haven't listened to it already, go back and get it. Uh, but we had such a good talk. Uh, I never got to the fantasy part. So for 10 more minutes with Professor Adler, we're going to talk a little bit about the fantasy that we read. And on one hand, uh, Chuck, I, you, you said in the last episode, I call you Chuck, so I'll call you Chuck. Uh, on one hand, I just kind of assume fantasy doesn't count when it comes to physics and reality, because like, how can it count? But you bring it out in your book, and I think it's interesting. So tell me how fantastical elements find their place in real science and why you chose to include it in your book. Well, I'll take the second part first. Um, Paul Anderson, the science fiction writer who also wrote fantasy as well, wrote a wonderful essay called On Thud and Blunder, you know, kind of a parody of, of the, you know, blood and thunder sort of thing, where he was talking about fantasy writing specifically, where he was complaining about the fact that a lot of people who wrote fantasy didn't really pay attention to, um, he focused more on things like historical and um, geographical consistency and reality. You know, he's talking about people having galloping horses across the landscape for hundreds of miles when galloping horse that far would actually basically kill it. People, you know, swinging swords, which would cleave through, you know, which would cleave through ogres when that's again, a very unrealistic thing to do. And his complaint was that if people don't pay attention to these concepts, even in a fantasy novel, these issues that things that are so far away from reality that readers are just not going to believe them after a while. And so this, and that's what kind of got me thinking about, that sort of philosophy got me thinking about this issue of scientific realism, if you want to call about that, call it that in fantasy stories. And of course, fantasies are not going to be scientifically realistic by pretty much by definition, but at least they can be self-consistent about how they handle using magic. Um, for example, uh, we talked about this on the last episode, the issue of the conservation of mass. Do some fantasy writers basically, you know, when you're turning a person into, when someone's turning into a wolf, for example, you know, they will sometimes say explicitly that mass is conserved. Or you have things like people turning into um, cats or other types of animals where the mass is significantly lower or sometimes significantly bigger than the original mass was. And so do they care? You know, they don't have to care about these things, but the question is, you know, if they can do that, is there a limit? You know, can they make something in the size of an elephant 
or a blue whale or something like that, or the size of a planet, where, you know, what, what are the limits they're going to put down for those sorts of, uh, for, those, for those sorts of things. And so I got, I just got kind of interested in that and just kind of interested in, well, you know, even though fantasies are fantasies, there should be something that is still somewhat realistic about them. And that's kind of where I started from with the, with, with the, the with those sorts of, uh, with those sorts of investigations, that sort of research. So something that's fascinating to me is this, uh, in, in terms of uh, conservation of mass is, uh, there's a, I, I did some business trips to Taiwan and there's a, a part of Taiwanese folklore is the, the story of Hokopo, which was as, and it was a, the, the story is based on a belief, whether it was ever a real belief or not, I don't know but uh, at least part of folklore that as a person became uh, an old, old person, uh, an elderly uh, individual, they could morph into uh, animals. And uh, and the story of Hokopo is how she she becomes, she's called a tiger witch. She becomes a tiger, Uh, which I find interesting anyway, because there really isn't a whole lot of history. I don't think about tigers being on Taiwan, but that might've added to the fantastical elements for all I know. So, um, when we talk about doing that kind of thing, I think there's a, there's a dual question here. First of all, uh, a tiger is substantially larger uh, bulk-wise and uh, density, uh, muscle density than a human. But also, uh, we're talking about probably a, a higher metabolic rate as well, uh, you know, both for oxygen and for uh, solid food. Um, when you, the physicist, looks at a problem like this, uh, it's easy, I'm sure, to just say, well, it just can't. It just can't. <laughs> but but when you, when, in those times where you let your mind really play with the idea, have you ever come to a point where you say, oh, yeah, I think, like, it can't, but it could. Can you, <laughs> do you ever get into that uh, mind game with yourself, I guess, is the question. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, um, first of all, there are some fantasy writers who did actually bring up the issue of, of turning into a tiger. I, I think I mentioned Paul Anderson before. He wrote a novel called Operation Chaos, in which the central character is a werewolf, and he's basically um, in the middle of a. This was written, I think, in the 1950s or 60s. I, I don't remember exactly when, but he's in the middle of kind of a fantasy equivalent of the Second World War. You know, it's not against. It's um, it's a different set of allies and enemies, but it's in the same time period. And as part of that, he faces off against a person who is in fact a were-tiger. But in the book, what he says basically is that this person had to be huge in order to turn into a were-tiger. He had to basically maintain a body weight of something like three or 400 pounds simply to be able to turn into a fairly small tiger. And the book actually goes into some detail about the issues that that would bring with having a person basically having to maintain that sort of life. Um, so yeah, that's, and so if, if you have, you know, if, if you're, if you're going to basically conserve mass, if you're going to turn a grandmother into a tiger, it's going to be quite a small tiger, I think at that point, or a very, very hungry tiger. I, I don't know what the point of the stories is, but that's again, you're talking about metabolic rate is like, yeah, if a tiger is that thin, it's going to be starved for, starved for food probably. Well, she ate her niece. So maybe, <laughs> maybe that <laughs> maybe that plays with it and of course the the moral of those stories is you know as you, if you're a kid don't go out in the dark stay at home where you're supposed to be you know type of thing you know that Hansel and Gretel type stuff but 
Um, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, uh, turning a, a grandma or grandpa into a, a tiger would be problematic. I mean, you, you need a, the size of a, you know, NFL lineman uh, right. to even probably make it work. Uh, and even that's not healthy in the long term, probably. Um, so that's really interesting. You, you talk in your book uh, about Kleiber's law. Mm-hmm. And we've kind of already discussed probably some of the concepts about it, but there's another side and, and feel free to redirect as you need to. But uh, we were talking about the idea of centaurs uh, at work a couple of weeks ago. And, um, you know, you've got the horse, but instead of where the neck of the horse is, you've now got the torso of a man. So do I have two sets of everything, basically, uh, if, if talking about either conservation of uh, mass or uh, metabolic rates or however you want to attack the problem, uh, what type of issue am I looking at with uh, respect to Kleiber's law when I'm dealing with fantastical elements? Um, well, yeah, I mean, the, the centers is kind of interesting because uh, I'm, I'm reminded of actually two things there. Um, first of all, uh, uh, one of C.S. Lewis's Narnia stories, which uh, the Narnia books have centaurs in them, and one of the people makes a comment about, uh, one of the dwarfs, I think, makes a comment that you really don't want to invite a centaur over for lunch because they have to fill up both of their stomachs, the one with hay and the other one with, you know, with, with, with people food, so to speak. And so the implication there, of course, is that centaurs do, in fact, would, in fact, eat quite a lot um, if you invited them over for dinner. Um, Robert Heinlein, in his book Starman Jones, had an alien race who were essentially centaurs. The one issue with them was that they were carnivores. There wasn't actually any issue of them foraging or anything like that. They just happened to have four, you know, basically four legs to travel on plus a pair of plus a pair of arms they could do other things with. I don't know of any reason why that would be impossible. I mean, I think it's actually kind of an interesting design for an alien, um, basically to have, you know, kind of a horse type of basic combined horse and rider into one, more or less. Um, but yeah, you do have to think about the issue of metabolic rate. And so we talked about, uh, you mentioned Kleiber's law. Kleiber's law is basically a um, law relating the weight of an object to how many calories it has to eat per day. You know, what is the, and um, what's always been interesting about that, um, and in terms of, you know, in terms of these issues, is that Kleiber's law is really kind of what limits the size on flying animals on Earth because Kleiber's law basically says that, yeah, the metabolic rate, the amount of power that an, op, that a, that a, an animal can output increases as its weight increases, but it doesn't quite increase as fast as the weight increases. So for every 10% that the weight increases, the metabolic rate only increases by about seven and a half percent, something like that. And, but, the power that's required for an animal to fly increases faster than its weight increases. So for every 10%, um, the weight increases, I think it's more like 11 or 12% increase in the power that's required to get the animal in the air. And that comes, and that's not a hard and fast rule. You can kind of winkle around it in some ways, but at some point you kind of run, you know, as the, as animals gets heavier and heavier and larger and larger, you simply can't, generate enough power to get it to fly. And this is why, in fact, we don't see really large flying animals on the earth. And so this has always been an issue with me when I'm thinking about fantasy animals like dragons, 
because you have to think of a way, if, if, if you want to make them realistic, which you don't have to do, but if you want to make them realistic, you have to think of a way of getting around that limitation. Um, I used to actually do a really fun um, uh, spring break class down at Duke University with two other professors there, uh, which was all about, th th these were two geneticists or biologists who would talk about biological aspects of science fiction. But I would come down for a day, I've done this I think two or three times, I would come down for a day and I would give a talk called um, How to Design a Dragon, or Let, Let's Design a Dragon was the title of the talk, which I think is actually the title of one of the lectures in the lecture series that uh, for Wondrium. But the idea there was we basically looked at this issue of Fiber's Law and how you could actually design working quote unquote dragons that would actually obey the laws of physics. And the answers would either be, well, you either have to make them small or you have to think of some way that they can actually eat enough to keep the metabolic fires burning because they need to actually exert so much power in order to keep on, in order to fly. I can't remember where I saw this once. It was National Geographic or PBS or I don't know who, but uh, where they had posited that dragons, real ones, would have uh, been able to take basically the methane that they produce naturally and fill air sacs to create uh, kind of the, uh, the opposite of ballast, I guess, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, don't know if that's even possible, but it was an interesting idea. Naomi Novik, uh, I think, used that idea in her Temeraire books, which are really wonderful. I love them. Um, they're basically fantasy retellings in the Napoleonic Wars, uh, where essentially she essentially says, okay, everything is the same in this world, except that this world also has dragons. And she retells the Napoleonic Wars using that idea. They're wonderful books. Uh, but in her books, I think it's the same idea that dragons basically have these, uh, they, they call them air sacs, but presumably they're filled up with methane or some lighter than air gas that allows them to actually float upwards and gives them lift against their weight so that they can actually, they can use that to fly. Uh, I, I once had a coffee table book that when I was really young, had a coffee table book, which had exactly the same idea. I think it was called dragons with an exclamation point which again had this idea that dragons were filled up with methane, which also of course gives them a good mechanism for breathing fire as well. Yeah, so they, I think that was positive by the show I saw too. Um, and then of course, you know, they have to be careful about utilizing that uh, capability because they lose their buoyancy if uh, they get, okay. So uh, yes, listeners, you are correct. Uh, this is way more than 10 minutes with Professor Adler and we're going to keep going as long as he's good with it because I have a quote that I want to, uh, that we've talked about uh, offline that I want to talk about online. And the quote is from the great Arthur C. Clarke. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. It's a well-known quote. Um, and the reason I bring it up is, of course, because we're talking about fantastical elements and the, the possibilities in science. Uh, someone pointing a stick at something else and saying something with hocus pocus attached to it and changing it into something or making it disappear is not necessarily what Arthur C. Clarke was talking about. But what does that quote mean to you, the physicist, um, but also relating it to uh, the fantasy you read? Um, I am not sure. This is a quote that's always been a, 
a little bit problematic for me because I understand what he's what what Arthur C. Clarke was getting at. He's basically saying that you know there's a lot more to science than we understand, and so people who are you know aliens who are much 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 more advanced to us, essentially you know coming down to Earth would look essentially magical. Um, I'm not sure I believe that because I think nowadays when we look at that, we would probably say to ourselves, because of the mindset of the modern world, we would not, we wouldn't say magic, we'd say technology, we'd say advanced super science or something like that. And um, I, I think that the quote is, I won't say misleading, but I will say that I think the quote is a little bit um, exaggerated in the sense that our attitudes towards these sorts of things have changed since the Middle Ages, when people actually did believe in, you know, believe in witchcraft and things like that. We would probably nowadays tend to say, well, there is some scientific reason behind this, even if we can't understand this. I don't know if you've ever read an author named Adrian Tchaikovsky. Uh, you, you've read Adrian Tchaikovsky? Uh, yes, yes, I have, yeah. I just discovered him a few uh, about a month ago or so, but um, someone said you really ought to read this writer and started reading it. He wrote a, a novelette called Walking to Aldebaran. Have you read that? Uh, no, I'm not familiar with that one. But this is almost kind of the inverse of Clark's Law. Essentially, um, a bunch of uh, astronauts discover this artifact, which is, you know, <laughs> I would say almost clearly magical but they basically insist on it being a piece of technology because that's how they interpret it. And maybe it is a hugely advanced technology. It's just so far beyond what I would, I think is even conceivable to do that um, you might as well just call it magical and, and just have done with it. Um, it's a really wonderful story and I'm not gonna spoil anything about it um, beyond, just, you know, beyond just saying that that's kind of the setup for the story. But I, I thought it was just a fantastic story. And I think it's almost the inverse of Clark's law is that people coming upon this incomprehensible thing, which they can't analyze, which they can't understand through any known laws of nature that they can, still calling it, well, yeah, that's science, though. Even though it looks like magic, they're still saying, yeah, we'll try to fit this into our, you know, into, into our worldview because it's got to be part of that. It's got to be part of the world. It's got to be scientific on some level. I think that's really interesting. The The book I'm familiar most with uh, his, it's actually a novella, I think, uh, lengthwise, but it's uh, One Day All This Will Be Yours, where he deals with uh, time travel quite a bit. And the, it's a guy who's way, way at the end of time, uh, able to manipulate to keep things the way he wants them, um, uh, whether it keeps history the way it's supposed to be or not is a different issue. But uh, but his, he's, a, he's a great writer. He's a Someday I'm going to get him on the show. I keep asking his publicist to help me out. And, uh, but he's always, he's way busier than I am. So, uh, so I, I want to get him on someday. Well, I'll talk about both of those books next time I get a chance or, or when I get a chance. Uh, yeah. All that's interesting. I think if, uh, you know, aliens come down in a spaceship in my backyard uh, instead of, I mean, we'll be in awe. I'll be in awe. Cause I, I love the, I'd be like, yeah, yes, I was right the whole time. Um, but uh, there'll be some awe, but then also, uh, the minds uh, such as you uh, on this planet are going to start figuring this stuff out. And, and I think <laughs> instead of a question of uh, what in the world is that the question will be how much longer until we can pull off what they just pulled off. Um, right. So I, I think it's, it's a little bit different mindset. Like you were talking about earlier, 
then we even understood, you know, gosh, seventies are a lot longer ago than I thought they were, <laughs> but, uh, you know, 40, 50 years ago, much less back in the middle ages, like we were talking about. Um, so anyway, uh, listeners, uh, thanks for hanging out with us today. And, and Chuck, thanks for spending some more time with us. Uh, these types of topics are really interesting to me. I think it's interesting be, uh, in one way because as an aspiring writer, and I know the aspiring writers that listen to the podcast, uh, it's good to ground ourselves in the science behind our uh, uh, either fantasy or science fiction. Um, but also it's good to just get an idea of the science that we see interacting with uh, us every day, even if we don't understand it. So I really appreciate your time and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Really. Um, so, uh, folks, make sure you get a hold of the previous episode. It's got a little bit uh, more about uh, Chuck's background, his education, uh, what he does on, as a day job, and uh, how you can get a hold of uh, some of his other lessons. Um, but in the show notes are all the links to get a hold of all that information at any rate. Uh, I look forward to uh, sitting down with you all in the near future and having another guest on who's going to teach us a lot of good things um, over a cup of coffee in space. Mm-hmm.